Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Hello, happy hump day. Hello, Tracy. How are you? I am awesome. I have been to a wedding, my friend's wedding. I love a good wedding. Oh, my friend's wedding. I was actually watching uh, by accident my best friend's wedding last oh, night. The Julie Roberts movie. It's, a, it's not a very old movie. Yeah, Julia. Julia Roberts, right? That's it, Julia Roberts. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I think I've seen that film in bits, but I've never seen it all together. And to be honest with you, I never stayed up until the end of the movie anyway. Oh, I so tell me about your friend's wedding. How was it? Oh, it was lovely. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to go. It was only the last couple of weeks that I realized that I could go and and there was still room. But it was lovely. It's always lovely when you know the person getting married and you know, you care about them and and to see them so happy. It was really nice. And they've got, and it's just such a wonderful merging of family and friends. And oh, it was, I just love it. It's beautiful. It's like one of the best things I like to go to, a wedding of somebody I know. Um, yeah, it's, it's a celebration of love, isn't it? It is. It is. So, oh, no, I actually should say it's a celebration or a declaration of love. It's when you're declaring your love to somebody else and promising to work with them in a relationship for the rest of your life in front of all the people that you hold so dearly. Yeah, it's beautiful that you see it. I'm very visual and I, I've always said I can see love um, between people, not just romantic love, all types of love. I think you always see it, whether it's, you know, your children, your partner, your family, your siblings, your pets. You can see love and that and it's a beautiful thing. And there was a lot of it going around. That's, good. That's good. Well, I'm glad it's contagious. Yeah. So bring the love. And yeah. a good party. It's a good party. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a good party. And the weather was beautiful. And you know, it's nice. Actually, what's nice as well is people traveling having to travel most people were traveling for that wedding and some further than others but it's good because then you're removed from your own like if it was in Sydney and everybody lived in Sydney you go to the when you go home and then you know you'd have to get back to your life and your babysitters and whatever 
but because it was a way everybody obviously taken care of made arrangements to be there and really be present that's what I mean I think people are more present and they're not yeah having to go back so quickly to their lives so people are there yeah, for the whole weekend yeah mm. that's a good point actually just uh, yeah with wedding locations um, having it slightly further out from where you normally live people do have to your guests do have to make a bit of an effort to get to but at the same time it's also making time for them for the guests to also really enjoy the day really envelope themselves in that day so um, yeah that's actually a good point so there's that and that's as well is great because often you see at weddings the bride and groom you know especially if they're quite big there's a lot of people there but you know it's not easy for them to spend quality time with everyone you know they're trying to get around say hi to everyone and there'll be people there they haven't seen for years so it's not easy to do that and it's often impossible to be honest um, but to have people there pretty much for the weekend um, and have different things and to be able to spend time, because how often do you get to do that? I mean, it happens at weddings and funerals and, and weddings are happier occasions. Let's be yeah, honest. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was it, really. So that's what I've been doing. That's great. Now, I had an interesting week. I think the highlight of my week was probably um, attending um, an exhibition. It was the Steve McCurry um, photography exhibitions so not sure if you know who Steve McCurry is um, for our listeners uh, if you don't know who Steve McCurry is he's basically uh, a photographer who um, who's quite well known for taking pictures um, for the National Geographic magazine and one of the most famous pictures that he took was of an Afghan girl um, she was in a, like, a red robe and she had these piercing green blue eyes and yeah, that was the front cover of one of the National Geographic magazines, I think more than 20 years ago. And, um, and she became, and actually the girl, we actually became famous around that. And so did a picture. But Steve McCurry is basically also, he's basically famous for, his work's famous for um, taking pictures of um, people in countries like India, in Afghanistan, third world countries, basically, and homing in on portraits to reflect and to show um, life and to tell a story. And so, um, so yeah, so I went along to this exhibition and I'm quite familiar with Stephen McCurry's work. I've got a few of his books and, um, and I've also got a favourite piece, of, a favourite photo of his. And, um, and so when I went along, um, what I wasn't expecting was actually hearing about the stories behind each picture that was taken. And so all these, a lot of the pictures that I'd seen for many years, I never knew of a story behind them. And so this exhibition actually gave me the chance to hear that there was a story, the full story behind each picture, which was amazing, which is great, great evening. And, uh, and yeah, the exhibition is still showing in Sydney. So any of our listeners who are based in Sydney, it's definitely worthwhile going. And what was your, so what's your favourite picture then? Um, so my favourite picture was, it's called um, Mother and Child. And it's a picture, it's a photograph where um, it's in Bombay, in the streets of Bombay. And um, if anyone's been to Bombay, what you'll find is that when you jump into a cab or uh, if you're in any kind of mode of transport, a car, a car or a van or a taxi, normally when you're driving down the main roads in Bombay, when the car stops at a traffic light, you normally get um, street kids um, or homeless people who are on the streets coming over and tapping on your window, begging for money or food or any kind of anything you can offer them. 
And uh, it's a very common thing that happens um, to this day. And um, with Steve McCurry, when he was traveling around India, he was in a car and it was quite a rainy day. And as the traffic lights turned green, his driver um, was just about to go. And as he was leaving, a mother who had a child in her arms um, just put her hand against the window. And in a split second, um, Steve McCurry flipped the camera and as the car drove off, it was just one shot. And it was that picture, which is my favorite, because it, ha- it just it, it captures that mood in India in a Bombay rainy street just so well. And it, the eyes of a child looked straight into the camera and it's and the hand of the lady like against the glass. It just captures the two worlds and it, it just speaks a thousand words. So um, I love that picture. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I'll have to look it up now. Yeah, I think I've seen that one. Yeah. So that was my week. Mm-hmm. Actually, I also started a new book, uh, which I've been enthralled in. And it's called uh, Age of Vice. By D- and it's just a, an amazing book. I can't put it down. I'm midway through. And there's so much action that's happened. Yeah, it's set in India. And it's basically like Shantaram meets White Tiger meets Lion, um, all mixed up into one. It's an amazing story. And I still haven't finished it. So that's uh, that's something that's taken up my week. But, yeah. Is, is it as big as Shantaram? Because Shantaram is a beast. It is a big book, yes. But I have to say, it's probably more gripping than Shantaram. It's on the same kind of elk. Um, but like I said, it literally is like Shantaram crossed with white tiger, crossed with lion. Um, so, and I'm only halfway through it. So, um, so yeah. And, and um, word on the street, word on the literary street is that this book is going to be part of a trilogy. Oh. And so I've got a feeling that and I said this, I said this when Shantaram came out. Many years ago, mm. when Shantaram came out, I had the same thing. And as soon as I was reading Shantaram, I was thinking, we're going to make this into a film. We're going to make this into a series. And that's what happened like 20 years later. I am predicting the same for this book. Um, Age of Vice, if it is a trilogy, even if it's not, I predict that it's going to be not a film, but a series. Right. For sure. Well, you sure. heard it here first. There you go. There you go. And mm. it's so I'm going to kick off with a story from Nine News and it's about um, the gender neutral language that we're using. And um, Nine News is a, a news feature. The headline is South Australia Parliament to move to gender neutral language. South Australia has decided to remove all gender specific terms from state parliament's rules of procedure. Gender pronouns such as she and he will be replaced with they and them after a review prompted recommendations to move to gender neutral. Under the changes, terms such as Her Majesty when referring to a monarch and His Excellency when referring to the governor have now been replaced. So you might think, okay, well, when I was reading this, I was thinking, what on earth are they going to replace it to? Because I never thought about the pronouns in terms of Her Majesty, His Majesty, right? So um, here's what the article goes on to say. Her Majesty will be called the Sovereign and His Excellency will instead be known as the Governor. The Governor. <laughs> the Governor. The Governor. It sounds very much like EastEnders. Or the I know, I'm just thinking London. I'm thinking like oh, the Governor yeah. or a gangster or something. 
Exactly. It's like it's really straight out of East End, isn't it? The governor. Other changes that have been adopted after the review include reforms to allow maternity leave, breastfeeding infants in the chamber and committees to meet electronically. The government and opposition have both backed the changes, which are in line with the federal government's content guidelines regarding gender and sexual diversity. The opposition spokeswoman, Michelle Lensick, said the changes had the Liberal Party support. She said it's important that Parliament continues to represent all South Australians by reflecting community expectations and the simplifying and updating of references now brings us in line with other jurisdictions across the country. That's what she said. So, however, other politicians said the move was going too far and smacked of woke. So that's why I thought I'd bring this article up, because when I read it, I'll be honest with you, I kind of laughed out loud when I heard about the labels being um, exchanged to the sovereign and the governor. I've always known as it's Her Majesty, it's His Majesty. Um, I mean, question is, are we going too far with pronouns to apply this to the royals and how we address them? What do you think, Tracy? Generally speaking, I think this is a great policy to adopt. I personally would like to see this rolled out in more workplaces. As far as the specific to the royals, I don't see that as the same idea because the whole idea about the, you know, getting rid of him and her or she and him is because of the unconscious biases that play out in workplaces like maternal bias and things like that. And they're unconscious. So I keep repeating that because people assume that they are not part of the problem, but you can say she and then automatically have assumptions about this person's ability, about this person's state, just because the word she was used in reference to them. And that's a fact. That's why we are where we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to, to swap out, just so in it's generally they, them, when you're describing people, I think that's great. Move forward. And obviously, they're supporting that with other initiatives like maternity leave and breastfeeding and whatever, and the more flexible family because there's a lot of families, right? More flexibility so that the woman's not necessarily having to take on the bulk of the responsibility and leave her work and whatever. Anyway, so all great. I, I get that. And then the other side of it is as well, in support of people who identify as non-binary, fine. All good. Mm-hmm. I don't see a problem with it. I don't really get the whole, the royal family part because the Her Majesty's that's her gender or he, he, that's his gender there are, there's only one of them at any one time so yeah. I don't mm. understand that I don't really care to be honest I don't think it's a big deal I don't think it's the same the same thing I don't think it necessarily needed to be changed because like I say it's one person at any one time whereas the whole community of whoever works in that workplace to get rid of the unconscious bias <laughs> towards a particular sex but Her Majesty is Her Majesty. She's a woman and identifies as a woman. She's a woman. His ma- what his what is His Majesty? Is it? It's now His Majesty. That's right because yeah. we have King Charles, so it's His Majesty. Uh, however, what the South Australian government has has decided to refer to this in in parliamentary language as the sovereign. Mm. So I think it's a step too far. I, I don't really care. And if you're very, maybe if you're very, uh, what's the word, royalist, that you, 
that you might believe that or feel that way. I, I get it. I wouldn't care either way. If I don't see it being the same, having the same impact, mm. changing yep. it. I don't see it being the same thing. To me, it's different in my head anyway. But I like the, what they've done in general. And it's interesting what you said or what the story said about it being aligned with other states. Other jurisdictions. Yeah. Other jurisdictions, because I have never heard of that before. Not in like, I've not heard about New South Wales or Victoria or Queensland or... Yeah, I don't even um, about breastfeeding infants in the chamber because I haven't heard that story before. And so, I mean, I've heard of it in a workplace before whereby um, I know that organisations um, have been accommodating um, specific rooms for mothers returning to the workplace mm. to accommodate this. Uh, I mean, not all organisations embrace this, but it's great to see that Parliament House in South Australia um, has made a point of this which is great yeah and in terms of the example with the royal family and uh, I mean I do err on the side of being a royalist um, and uh, you know I'm not ashamed to say that uh, but uh, like Sam I can't see any major difference between uh, his majesty and using the sovereign I mean I can't see myself using the sovereign so much you know mainly because it's like you say it's one person in that role so uh, yeah it was you know different before Queen Elizabeth passed away, it was Her Majesty, and that was what I was always referring to the Queen as. But I can't see any difference with the sovereign being used. Mm. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And it's weird. Yeah, it's an interesting article about how they've pushed the pronouns and the use of language into the realm of the royal family. So I thought that was quite interesting because, uh, yeah, like you said, it is a good point in the fact that there is only one head of state. So um, but the fact that even when there's only a singular head of state, they're applying pronouns. It was interesting to see that play out. And, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. And it's not even like they're playing a pronoun. They're not they're playing a noun, aren't they? Like a name. It's weird. I wouldn't even call, like the Queen, I would never have called her Her Majesty. I would always call her the Queen or refer to her as the Queen. I'm surprised they don't do the Queen or the King, actually. Yeah, I mean, well, they do. um, They've got the Queen consort, haven't they? I mean, what's Camilla regarded as? What's Camilla? She's the Queen. She's actually, I think the, the recent news has told us that, I think, once a coronation happens... Camilla will be known not as the Queen Consort, but as the Queen. Really? Yeah. Oh, did you not know that? That's why I said earlier about how I ear on the side of a royalist because I've got my ear to the ground when it comes to royal news. <laughs> no, I think that's confusing. The King's the King. There's only one King or Queen. Yes. Unless it's a fantasy TV series. <laughs> it's only- so King Charles is known as the King. And um, before the coronation, um, Camilla is currently known as the Queen Consort. Because... I thought that's what she would keep. But that's um, actually... But no, it's going to be known as the Queen. So it's going to be a King and Queen of England. So oh, that's weird. Yeah. Because think, yeah, yeah. when we had the Queen, her husband wasn't the King. That is a good point too. Yes, yes. He was the Duke of Edinburgh. He was Duke of Edinburgh, yeah, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, yes, that's what He was meant. Prince and he was a Duke. There must be some kind of regulation, there must be some kind of rules around that. They must um, get to choose because otherwise she would be a princess. 
and a duchess or something she wouldn't be um yeah there's a, i think there's, in, in history there's always been uh, I, i've actually heard of a king consort but it was in a fantasy kind That's of story the fantasy <laughs> tv series I watched, yeah i was watching um, the house of a dragon which is part of a game of thrones yeah. series. And actually, the House of a Dragon, it reminded me very much of what's going on in today's royal family. It was quite funny. And in the House of a Dragon, they have a queen and they announce her partner as the king consul. Well, this is what I mean. So I've never, well, you know, it's not, the queen reigned a long time. So, you know, I don't know what history, you know, the actual history and what they do. But to me... I don't see it as being the same thing. I don't see it supporting the initiative. I get the other, how it what plays out when you've got a culture of people in a workplace, mm-hmm. but I don't see how it's the same. It doesn't feel the same to me. That's just... Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that, that's what what kind of um, led me to a question about whether or not it's gone too far, so whether or not it's applicable. Maybe. But how often do they refer to the... Maybe they... I don't know enough. But they, they, they must do quite a lot because... Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, we're still part of the Commonwealth. Yeah. I guess it'll be in a lot of documentation as well, like written as well. Yeah. Yeah. In parliamentary. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good thing generally to have that as a, a workplace thing, but people don't like change. There's always going to be people saying it's gone too far, but I just think they don't understand. They don't really truly understand or comprehend the impact of unconscious bias um so the story i have yeah which i thought which is an interesting idea it's just i don't know what they teach in schools these days so this story is from the evening standard and it's a story from the uk and the title of the story is london schools told that history classes need to embrace diversity so again you could be like a wokeism you could say that, right, just by hearing that title. But I think it's really important, even in any country, because I was talking to Holly, who's a teacher, and she was telling me that really is so great what the um, students are taught from very young age now, when even when they're learning history, they're taught about, well, whose point of view is this from? If it's a painting or, you know, somebody a historical story whose mm. point of view is this from and is that likely to be the reality of the time so they're getting taught to think critically about what they're being taught which I love I don't remember that from mm. my schooling I don't remember that at all so I think that's a great way to teach because you're getting pupils to think about the different perspectives in that time and to think about that and what yeah, they're being told and it's also like you know in terms of like there's probably so much of history which is just left out and it's only until you're older where you get a choice to then find out and research about it yourself Mm -hmm. you don't get taught it in schools I know from my own background you know I'm from an Indian background and I remember there being very very top line level of being taught about Indian history even Independence Day Um, maybe even the top line level of the story of Gandhi and then, but it was only until I left school, it was only and, until I decided to teach myself and find out about it myself and, you know, read books, you know, find it, um, yeah, just ask people, talk to people, watch documentaries and teach myself that. The point is to have that in school. 
Well, the thing is, they can't teach you about every country's history. I get that. But, but what's relevant in what's relevant in America would be to know about slavery, how that worked. I don't know if they do teach you. I don't know. You know, what was the reality of it? And the same in the UK. Like, we have a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean, from Africa, from India, from Pakistan. What? I never got taught in anything in history about how that came about. Yeah, exactly. But it's things like, for example, I was actually watching something um, this week, actually, that came up, which I didn't know about. And it kind of like, it's related to this in the sense that the Russian Revolution, I didn't know that the Russian Revolution, it actually started with a small group of women who were who were basically leading a march for International Women's Day. You see, and so because I remember when I was taught at school, it was all about Russian male leaders who started the revolution. Uh-huh. But it wasn't. It wasn't. But the Russian um, leaders were actually out of the country at the time when the revolution took place. It was actually the Russian revolution actually was instigated by a small group of women who were leading the march for um, women's rights and um, celebrating International Women's Day. And they basically um, uh, began to uh, uh, also question the status of the way Russia was being led. And that's what led to the Russian Revolution. And so uh, that's a part in history which, you know, which is covered up. It may not even be taught at schools. So the kids at school are taught the Russian Revolution was led by three specific males, but they weren't, but it wasn't. So it's a way that stories are even told. So yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, it's the perspective that's told and the agenda behind this person telling the story. Because going back to where we grew up in the UK, the relevant history there, we weren't really taught it. I had no idea why we had all these different cultures living in England. No idea about the Commonwealth. Maybe it was taught in other schools, it just wasn't taught in my school. Yeah. Going back to the story, it says artists urge schools to use their lessons about notable people of African descent. London schools have been urged to teach children about a wider range of diverse historical characters to encourage greater empathy and mutual understanding. A pair of artists supported by the Trip Hop Band. What's Trip Hop? I'm so old. I don't know what that is. Trip Hop, okay. I'm hoping it's a typo, but it says Trip Hop Band. I've heard of it before, but uh, I'm going to see what it is. Right. So a pair of artists supported by the trip hop band Massive Attack, we know who they are, have created a series of lesson plans to help pupils learn the hidden histories of notable people of African descent. Charles Golding, one of the artists behind Cargo Classrooms, which produced the lesson plans, said he wants London schools to embrace the project. Cargo Classrooms was set up by Mr. Golding and his childhood friend, poet Lawrence Hu, Features in the BBC documentary, which shows their lesson plans being used for the first time in schools in Bristol. Mr. Golding said he hopes the initiative now takes off in London schools. And it goes on about Massive Attack and other donors helping to support this um, initiative. But I was, well, the thought that popped in my head, all right, so notable people of African descent, relevant to, you know, African community. But I think they should do with all the communities that are, are a big part of, British culture they should teach a history of notable characters like Gandhi for example totally should be teaching about him in fact he was educated at Oxford or Cambridge wasn't he Gandhi yeah Oxford Oxford yeah I don't know why they don't teach you that I think the only thing I knew about him was from watching the movie 
It was a movie, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Which picked up a number of Oscars. Anyway, each lesson plan is based on a poem by Mr. Who and includes a video that teachers can play in class with original music created by Massive Attack. They include lessons about Nanny of the Maroons, who fought against the British in Jamaica after escaping slavery and helped free hundreds of slaves, and Dutty Boakman, an early leader of the Haitian Revolution, as well as Lonnie Johnson, who invented the Nerf gun and Super Soaker. There you go. You see, I mean, they mentioned Russian Revolution just in there, right? So this is what I'm talking about. It's like there's topics that are already being covered by education institutions. But like you said, it's the perspective and it's the origins that we're now deep diving into, which is fantastic, which is great. And, you know, maybe that's also that'll be more relevant to the children um, who are attending these institutions. I mean, if we could rewind back time, you know, if we had been presented with different perspectives on the Russian Revolution or other parts of history, you know, would our history lessons be more interesting? Oh, gosh, yeah. Dare I say? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just that. It's the different perspectives. But really, how many of the teachers would have even known? Like, how do you know that something's missed out? Because from that, your story there, whatever books they're using to teachers unless that teacher was like an avid historian did lots of research they're not going to necessarily know that this textbook that they're using to teach the curriculum um, is missing out a massive perspective or just miss just not it's like you're not lying but you're not disclosing the whole truth yeah yeah I think I suppose I'm a bit of an exception when it comes to this uh, topic because the school that I went to Sydney Stringer in Coventry. It basically, it was very non-traditional um, school in the sense that the teachers, there were, the diversity amongst the teachers was clear. There were teachers of many different races and backgrounds, European backgrounds, uh, or even sexuality, um, different ages. It was just a melting pot of culture. Oh, and there was no school uniform either because it was a case of um, you were, students and pupils were encouraged to basically be themselves and express themselves through their clothing. It was fine. And so we were quite, uh, I suppose it was quite different. And the education wasn't just based around books. There were, you know, for example, I remember uh, there were teachers of different backgrounds and they would bring their own stories to the classroom. So Good. in that sense, it was very forward thinking. That's um, really wonderful. You're very lucky. Yeah. Um, my school was not like that. Every teacher was white. And actually, now I think about it, that's really shocking because there was that community had so many Indian, so many Indians, so many people in Pakistan. The black community wasn't as big where I grew up, but obviously it is, was, is in black in London. So it really surprises me um, because the teacher should represent the community as well. I personally think that's really important. Now, obviously, it's easy to say now. No, it never occurred to me then. So that's interesting. But anyway, this is what's really cool because it says London is a rich multicultural society and everyone stands to gain if we have a greater understanding of each other and more perspectives. And it's true. And these are not black stories. They are universal stories of oppression and success within oppression. Everyone can relate to that. And what else did you talk about? It does remind me of... The article kind of reminds me of a school that I went to. It's now being, I suppose, not celebrated, but it's become more kind of widespread. And it's more, it's, I suppose it's now a chance to deep dive 
into the content. Whereas, I mean, the school that I went to, that I've just described, I'm describing a school in the 70s and the 80s. And um, during that time, and it was for, during that time for teachers who were from ethnic backgrounds, from diverse backgrounds, to even find jobs in teaching, for them, that was bleak, that was breaking the glass ceiling. Whereas now we've come forward and now it's looking at the content of the K-Reference, what's being presented in school. So it's a really interesting article. It is. And and this Mr. Golding, the guy behind this initiative, whose American grandfather, Charles Hauser, like Rosa Parks, refused to move to the back of a bus in a stand against segregation. He says, we're trying to communicate with teachers that this material is not niche. It's for a broad section of the public. It is not black history for ethnic minorities. It's everybody's history. They're powerful individuals with incredible stories. And that was a, a documentary, a BBC documentary called We Are England, The Classroom Revolution. But that was aired, I'm trying to think when it was aired, look at the date, October, that was aired in October 22. Right, last year in October. Last year, yeah. So that was aired. I'd like to watch that. Yeah, But like in Australia, it would be very relevant to talk about the reality of the Indigenous people, the history here, how they fought alongside in the Anzacs, how they were part of the war, because that's not depicted very much. And what Australia Day means and why there's, you know, it's also a reminder of people's oppression and, you know, ancestors being killed. Now, that's not a necessarily celebration for some people. So I just think it's great that they're starting to teach that in schools now. Yeah, and it's great that it's also been uh, led by uh, Massive Attack. I'm, oh, so sure, massive yeah, attack. I'm, sure, I'm sure the students, uh, well, I don't know what the students are listening to nowadays, but in, in our day, if it was in a history class, if there was a programme led by Massive Attack, I am pretty sure that I'd be keen on my history lessons that a little bit more. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I love them. I remember one of the songs that was my favourite song for ages. Don't ask me what it's called because my brain's gone. <laughs> um, it was in the movie. I think it, the movie was called Slither. And it had a Baldwin. And it had uh, the blonde woman that got famous for the scene where she uncrosses her legs and you see everything. Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone. Yeah. That's Sharon Stone and a Baldwin, but not Alec Baldwin, one of the younger ones. Yes, yeah. And he had, the film was, anyway, it was like the cover, the music cover, Massive yeah. Attack, had the song there. And it was amazing. And that was just like... I would never stop listening to it. But anyway, Massive Attack are a big band. Yeah, and so that's what, they're, and they're known as um, Trip Hop. Trip Hop. What trip does it hop. mean? Did you look yeah, it up? Yeah, yeah. so Trip Hop is a musical genre that originated in the early 1990s in the UK, especially in Bristol, which is uh, where Massive Attack are from. So that's oh. why it's Trip Hop. So wow. there yeah. you go. I've never even heard that before. Yeah. Trip Hop. Okay. I think it's time for... Is it time? Is it about time? What would you do? Right, we have this scenario. I've never experienced this scenario, but I'm sure people have. Okay. So you just share. you're discussing a job candidate. So, you know, you're interviewing for a position. You're discussing a job candidate who wears a hijab. And a hiring manager says their worried clients won't be able to relate to her. What would you do? Oh, that's an interesting one. Well, before you answer that question, I have another question. Mm. Have you ever worked with anyone in a workplace or in a workplace where there was a woman wearing hijab? Yes, many times. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, I have. I suppose one of the environments that I've um, worked in is a media advertising environment where um, there's um, lots of work, lots of play, lots of it's a very social kind of culture where there's alcohol, which is openly there um, from midday onwards. And I know that there's my ex-team colleague um, who has worn a hijab in this environment that hasn't phased her. It hasn't phased, fortunately, it hasn't phased anyone in the environment. But I think I'd, I'd put that down to the company itself. The company that I was working for, they wouldn't have tolerated any kind of discrimination or bias towards anyone wearing a hijab. So I'm, yeah, I'm quite fortunate around to have that experience. And um, the other experience where I had is um, it's actually been working remotely. So I haven't had the exposure to uh, uh, to any of my, my co-workers and the impact that wearing a hijab has had. So those are the two experiences that I've had. In this particular, what would you do? With, if I was part of a hiring team and my colleague had said that when they had um, concerns around how this candidate would uh, represent the company in terms of clients is that was that a question well, sorry it says they're worried clients won't be able to relate to her clients wouldn't be able to relate to, to her um, I'd be asking the whoever said that I'd be asking the person I'd probably I'd deep down deep dive into it and ask about what exactly would they mean and if it did come up in terms of um, the hijab or the way the person looked because they were of a different culture then that's what's sort of, then I'd basically focus in on the, the skills at the interview that the candidate showed and just base it on that and bring that back to the room and base the selection of that. Beautiful. That's cool. I actually, um, I have not worked with anyone ever wearing a hijab. I'm thinking now the companies I've worked at, whether anyone, no, I haven't at all, which is quite interesting. I haven't. You have a, a, I suppose, thing that came up from memory now is a few years ago but the experience that I had with working with a team member who's wearing a hijab and um, and it was obviously because that's her culture and that was her that's her religion and um, and in her religion there's a fasting season Ramadan yeah I remember the the organization actually um, and she was the only person of a company who I think I don't know if whether or not how it came about whether or not she requested it or if the organization put this into place but they actually changed uh, they changed her hours slightly during the month of Ramadan and um, because it was a case of energy levels and concentration levels mm-hmm. and so um, just making sure that she was able to continue doing the work as comfortably as she could to the best of her abilities but also um, being mindful the organization was mindful of the fact that it's Ramadan and it requires fasting and so um, and in terms of in terms of that particular fasting period it can impact concentration and focus and the work that she was doing was around quality assurance and so which demands focus and concentration and so the the organization actually uh, actually can put in some steps well that's good I mean I have worked I've worked very closely with a Muslim lady she just didn't wear a hijab she didn't wear a hijab so I'm familiar, you know, with the Ramadan and I remember we should be fasting. Well, luckily for us is we had quite a flexible working environment anyway. So you could start later, start early, finish early, finish later, as long as you got your work done, it didn't bother people. Um, it was 
kind it was accepted working culture so that wasn't necessary to specifically you know modify her hours in that respect but yes I remember when she would be doing Ramadan so I haven't had this situation I guess the I don't know whether she chose maybe she wore a hijab outside of work I don't know never asked her I'm wondering about it now this is a situation and I'm wondering if she maybe never chose I'm just thinking I did go to her house as well she wasn't wearing a hijab so maybe she just is someone that chooses not to wear it anyway yeah I suppose it's an interesting one because I'm going to turn this question around a little bit in terms of what would you do so I'm going to turn it around a little bit and saying okay if I was of Muslim if I was following the Muslim religion and I was wearing a hijab inside the house when I was applying for jobs or if I went out to work would I wear a hijab and I think for me I would think about okay well my identity but I would also think about the organization and I'd be thinking okay is this organization an organization that is going to support me not put any attention around specific bias or discrimination and if it was then I wouldn't want to be working for that organization so for me I'd be yeah if I was an, an individual wearing a hijab then I'd still wear it to work and uh, because I'd be thinking, OK, well, I'm hoping um, and I'd be expecting that the organisation that I do put my time and effort towards would be supporting, you know, my culture that I follow. And it doesn't mm. have an impact on the work quality that I'm presenting. And that comes back into the answer to the, what would you do? Because regardless of where you're, whether you're wearing a hijab or not, it should it ideally shouldn't have an impact on your work output. However... If, you know it's, it's down to that client how they see that and that's what they're talking about here yeah. really and for me it's like I don't know I kind of don't care what if you're I don't know if I'm very maybe I'm idealistic but my clients I'm providing service to my clients and I will work with clients that need my services or can be supported by my services but are somehow aligned to my values and I'm very open about what my values are I make sure it incorporates it into my content. It's incorporated in my website. It's incorporated into as much of communication as I put out there. And I'd expect a company does the same with its missions and its values um, on its website. So I would be saying that a client would know, have an idea about a company's values and whether that would be acceptable. I don't know. I just think it, if you, there's always people in the world that will have problems with different cultures and we know that we see it on the news all the time I'd be saying if you don't like it go elsewhere yeah I mean there could be a situation whereby uh, for example an employee who's wearing a hijab you know let's say working in an advertising company and they've been working for in this advertising company for years and then um, one of their top clients ends up for a business ends up being an, an alcohol company and if that person wearing a hijab is going for a promotion how would that impact the business, a portfolio, if one of their biggest clients is an alcohol? I don't think see, it matters as long as that person doesn't have a problem working in it. You could be, you couldn't, you might not be Muslim and you might not drink. That's exactly that, well, suppose what, what I'm trying to say is that it can sometimes depend on the situation. Maybe that's yeah. where that question's coming from. Again, well, from all perspectives, but in terms of my experience, it's never been... There's never been any cause if whether or not someone wears a hijab or not. And it's, yeah, 
I'll tell you one 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 context because everything's context dependent, right? Yeah. So let's say you have a problem with Muslims. You believe, especially because you've got extremist Muslims. Yeah. It's really. I just think it's ridiculous to put everybody generalize a a religion and a community because of extremists. Because if that if everybody behaved like that, nobody'd like Catholics because the IRA were an extremist, you know, group of Catholics, for example, and they were terrorists. But I don't understand why then people don't hate Catholics. Do you know what I mean? Uh, or the ca- Catholic priests have known to abuse children. That does everybody then hate Catholics? So there are people that part of those communities that gave the community a bad name, right? Yeah, that's right. But it's, it's double. And that comparison that you've made, it obviously illustrates this blatant double standard. Yeah. You know, Muslims and Catholics. And it's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. Like the, you know, so Muslims are not bad people because they've got extremists who are terrorists, right? So there's that part. So imagine, this is the only context I can think of where it could even be a problem, especially in America, because it seems to be more of a thing in America, that 9-11 just happened, okay? So, you know, some Muslim terrorists, Islamic extremists, have killed so many people and there's always pain, always grief, always hurt, there's anger. And now you're taking every day as it comes and you're still doing business as usual and you're put to work with someone who's Muslim. Yeah, and I think we see what you're explaining there, I think, uh, I believe it did actually happen uh, straight after 9-11. And again, like I say, especially in America, it was the entire Muslim community, whether or not they wore a hijab or not, you know, they were pretty much, you know, they felt like they were walking on eggshells. Mm. They were being tarnished with that same terrorist brush. I think even nowadays, I don't know, I don't know if you speak to some Muslims, you know, when they go through airports, what their experience would be, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's years on. Yeah. So. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. Apparently, apparently, the, you know, the drug testing and all that, that you're going through security uh-huh. is random now. So what happens, you know, when you go through the beeper thing, there's a light comes on and it's supposed to be random, like programmed randomly. Yeah. So like that light comes checked up. Yeah. yeah. So when the light goes on, that whoever's walked through gets checked. And rather than the person doing the checking, just deciding who gets checked. That's fantastic. That's how it should be. Um, whether that's how it actually works, but that's how it should be. But anyway, why it matters. The hiring manager's statement could unfairly shut out the woman from a job she's well qualified for. It would also mean your company would miss out on adding her talent and diverse perspective to the team. Plus, statements like this can reinforce discrimination against Muslim women by presenting a spurious business case for not hiring them. It's true because you're excluding them. Maybe your client would have a problem. So it would be interesting to know how a company would deal with it. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose this comes back into, I know there's a previous um, podcast episode where we mentioned this about the importance of marketing and um, when it comes to organisations and what message they're putting out in their marketing to present who they are. And, you know, I know some, you know, so there's some organisation websites that I've looked at when you look at, like, who are we? And uh, basically they have uh, uh, pictures of women in wearing hijabs and, you know, that's the norm. And so if there was that scenario in what we've just been discussing, it shouldn't come as a surprise to the client. 
because that's who the company have represented themselves to be. Um, you know, they've represented themselves to be uh, a team of employees coming from a collection of um, different diversities. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Exactly. So I guess it comes down to what you're saying there. How has the company represented themselves in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. So the clients should know who they are, really. Yeah, and yeah. I think the, the company that I, I was previously working at, that's what they did very well. They presented themselves as a group of individuals who had a set of skills, regardless of what color, what background, um, what they wear on their heads. Um, it wasn't about that. And that's what obviously one of the reasons why they led to having such a successful team. Yeah. And then this is what the suggestion is of what you could do mm. like if you're actually in this situation. You could say to the hiring manager, I don't understand why they wouldn't be able to relate to her and list a few of her qualifications for a client-facing role. You're interviewing them, so something on the CVs got them there, right? And then if they've demonstrated that in the interview, then that's what you focus on, what you said, yeah? Qualifications, client-facing role. In general, refocusing the conversation on the criteria for the role that helps to shut down the bias. Brilliant, that's kind of what you said, right? Yeah. And it says why it happens, Hijab-wearing women can suffer discrimination based on their ethnicity, their religion, and gender. So, all of those reasons. Many Americans negatively judge the hijab, seeing as a sign of backwardness, extremism, or of Muslim women's oppression. Okay. As a result, they might see the woman as less modern. Oh, these are all things I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Um, They may see the woman as less modern, lacking in agency, and less relatable to clients. In reality, the hijab isn't a sign of any of those things, and women who wear it have a wide range of experiences and beliefs. But this biased thinking can hurt hijab-wearing women, as they are less likely to be hired than women overall. Interesting. Mm. It is interesting. Definitely. Definitely an interesting one, that. Yeah. And I wonder... If that's part of the reason why Muslims choose not to wear the hijab in the workplace. Yeah, do you know what? I never actually had a conversation with my team worker, who I used to work with, who I mentioned in this in this podcast, who wears a hijab. We never, we had lots of chats, you know, over lunch, over work, but it never came up. Um, but that's only because I suppose, uh, you know, I didn't see that as an, I don't know, I never saw it as an issue, but maybe I should have actually spoken to her about um, wearing the hijab, actually. It never really came up. Um, it'd be interesting. I'm still in touch with her. So um, maybe I'd actually like to have that conversation. Maybe even invite her on the podcast. Yeah, maybe. I'm thinking about my fr- old colleague as well. Um, I'm like, would she have ever wanted to wear one? Did she choose? Was that a choice? Never to wear one ever, or was it a choice never to wear one in the workplace? Mm. I'm really curious about that now. And also what it made me think of is me, when we were talking about how she wanted to wear, she would have loved to wear a sari to work. So that was one of our first episodes. I called it wearing a sari to work day or something like that. And I said, why don't you wear a sari to work? And she was very conscious of a perception of how she would look, whether it was perceived as professional or whether more, I think for her more, it would stand out more because nobody else was, she would look so different that nobody else would be wearing that. Yeah, I don't know, but it's interesting because I remember, because like I said to you, where I grew up was very much a 
large community of people from Pakistan, people from India. Yeah. I remember doctor, female doctor wearing sari. Sari, I know, that's right. I remember you saying, and I've worn a sari to work. I remember, and this was back in, uh, gosh, this was 20 years ago. I was working for a TV um, show, TV, and I was working in productions. I was working on a Richard and Judy this morning show in the UK. And uh, I was part of the production team and I wore a sari to work. And the reason being is because I've always liked the look of a sari. Uh, but it's a very, uh, it's not an easy thing to wear. And there's a lot of, I think it's about three meters of material there. And, you know, a lot of it can be embroidered. So it's going to be quite, feel quite heavy. And uh, if you're a petite frame like I am, it's not the easiest things to pull off, uh, especially in the workplace. Um, and so, but I, I just wore it, I wore it for one day. And I think I wore it because I think I remember there was a feature about the Indian look, which and Judy was going, we were covering. And I thought it'd be great, even though I was off camera, it'd still be good to embrace that feature being discussed so I wore a sorry to work and to be honest with you it's like there was a few people that thought oh wow this is really amazing this is really you look great but the other I remember nobody batted an eyelid mm. nobody batted an eyelid there was um, the crowd that I was working with the team I was working with there was it was mainly um white female workers but yeah there wasn't anyone else who was from an Indian background and, uh, but they didn't bat an eyelid. Um, and so I could have worn a sari to work practically every day of the week, but it wouldn't matter. Mm. So, and that was it. And that was in the UK. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just wonder now. Would I wear African clothes to work? No, because I don't wear them and don't wear them out of work. So yeah. to me, it's not a thing anyway. But I just I- think if you want to wear, that you should be able to wear that yeah yeah we were so i think with some cultural uh, i suppose pieces of clothing i think it's more to do with the practicality side of things sure for example with a sari it's about three meters long and so and it takes a little bit of time to work through and there's men to work to actually put it on and also with a sari there's also a, a portion of your midriff which is on display which is shown Mm. And that might not be professional in the workplace. Um, okay. That's why in terms of practicality, Vasari is a beautiful piece of dress. However, it's not necessarily, may not be suitable for the workplace, uh, which is why a lot of Indian women don't necessarily wear it. Whereas with the uh, hijab or even African dresses, it may be more suitable. There may not be um, parts of your body that are necessarily shown. With a hijab, it's actually covering parts of your body. Mm. So, and the practicality of it may not be as complex as with a sari. Yeah, I get that. But isn't there other style clothing, Indian, Pakistani, that doesn't show midriff? There's other types. Yeah, there's, of- there's what's called a salwar kameez, which is basically a, a tunic top and then some um, trouser bottoms. That's normally the trend or the style of dress for um, Punjabis or people of Sikh uh, origin. Okay. So, so but that's I'd like to see people wearing that if that's what they're used to wearing and then it comes down to that whole question of what is professional at work because to me uh you know pence black pencil skirt and shirt is so old-fashioned as a professional look and boring if I'm honest yeah I think fashion and also I think fashion has also the world of fashion has also taken this into account and I know that I've seen certain styles which have come up through the years like for example the Nehru collar which is basically an Indian origin shirt uh, where it's the collars which are turned up with Nehru so it's like collarless 
And that's sort of seen its way through to fashion, both in men's and women's fashion. Um, but also it's kind of like, for example, a tunic dress. You can still, and, you know, in terms of patterns from different, from African or Indian regions, you know, incorporated in business wear. So I've seen that. So I think what's happening is that we, we have been seeing uh, more uh, uh, traditional dresses and patterns seep into the business wear. Yeah, I just, I find it interesting. I'm trying to think about, I have heard people comment on somebody not looking or dressing professional, but it would be more things like revealing a lot, you know, mm-hmm. really short skirt or low cut top, or even for men wearing thongs and shorts, or maybe that's not professional because it's very casual laid back. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I just, and also I think it depends if you're client facing as well. If you don't deal with clients, if you're not seeing clients, how does it matter what you wear? Not offending anyone, not turning up naked. I don't know. I don't know. I was trying to think of. I remember one lady, and she dressed. I love how she dressed. Lots of color, very eccentric, if you could call it that. I just think it was amazing. I love. I wanted to see her every day. What she wearing? Just made the workplace more interesting. Mm, it does actually. That's just it. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, one of the companies I used to work at. And it actually, even going back to school, in my school days that I mentioned, and we didn't have a uniform. One of the things about going to school the next day was to see what is everyone else going to wear. And also, it was exciting to be, you had to dress up every day for school. It was uh, so, yeah, even though it was a little bit more pressure. And whereas obviously the focus should have been on the schoolwork, but there was also <laughs> a sense of, okay, there was also a focus on who are you, what kind of identity do you have? And there were so many fashion kind of stories yeah. out there. So, Well, um, I just think within reason, you should be able to wear what you want to work. And because, you know, for some people, how they dress is reflects their personality. That's the like a meaning to them. For me, I just like to wear vibrant color. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel a certain way to wear certain clothes. So that's how a part of how I express myself. But sometimes I just want comfort. You know what I mean? And for some other people, they couldn't give a hoo-ha what clothes they wear. It's not important for them. So I just think just like as long as you're not distracting people. Yeah. It's great to express yourself through your clothes. So but also it's like if you believe in a certain culture and a certain religion. And, um, you know, it's, again, if you're not, as long as you're not hurting anyone and you're not, um, you're not pushing any opinions onto others, then, you know, you should be able to, you know, dress the way you want to in the workplace. And if that's in accordance with your religion, then so be it. Well, feel comfortable to do it as well, because obviously Mina didn't feel comfortable, but that might be more about what she thinks about it than what her actual colleagues think. But anyway, I think we're out of time. So that's a great one. That's a great one. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to chatting about more stories in our next session. Me too, me too. So I'll see you soon. All right, see you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. 
Feel free to email us stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!